Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. If it's your first time joining us, whether online or in person, we just want to extend a special welcome to you and say thank you for being with us on this Sunday morning. You could be anywhere this morning or doing any single thing, and we're just happy to have you with us. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Resurrection City Church, and we are in a sermon series on the book of John. We're actually coming to the very end. We just have two sermons left, including today, um, which, which, is, which is great. Um, I think it's fun to kind of wrap the book up. We're co- we've come to the very climactic uh, ending of the book, which is Jesus' resurrection, and that's what we're going to be uh, talking about today. Uh, before we do, I just want to like th- throw this out there. I, I think sometimes in Christianity, we, we talk a lot about the cross, obviously, right? We talk a lot about Jesus' death. But I don't think we often enough um, emphasize the fact that Jesus ri- was raised again afterwards. Like the, the cross has the significance that it does because Jesus didn't stay dead, but because he was raised again. And I think we just need to, need to make sure that we, we put those two together. And so uh, I, I know for me in the past, I feel like uh, as I kind of learned more about the significance of the resurrection, like it, it kind of was a mind-blowing thing to me to, to think like th- this, this thing, it, there's so much incredible significance to what happens in Jesus' resurrection as well that, that makes the cross, it kind of proves the cross, uh, the power of the cross. It kind of shows that Jesus is the risen Lord. And so in, in part because of that, that's why we're called Resurrection City Church. I think like for us, we saw like a, a need to say, listen, the, the resurrection uh, gives us the hope that the cross and everything else that Jesus did was sort of validated. And so we're, we're going to talk about the resurrection today. Um, and we're just going to kind of walk through the story. I just want to walk through it, kind of like we did last week with the crucifixion narrative. I want to draw out uh, details that maybe we don't, we don't go over, right? Because every single year in the Christian church, we, we spend time at Easter and in Good Friday talking about Jesus' death and his resurrection. And it can kind of become like just you know, just something we do, right? Like every year we go, we hear the story, and we think we've heard this many, many times. If you've been in the church for a long time, maybe you feel that way. And so what I want to do today is just kind of draw out some of the details that maybe don't get discussed every year at Easter, and kind of draw out the significance of those and talk about why uh, those matter, and kind of tying them into the whole story that John has been telling in this book as well. All right, so let's, uh, let's move forward here uh, and let, let's get into the passage. So John 20, uh, 1 to 2. Clicker's not working, um, just letting you guys know. So, oh, now it is. It's working too well. Okay, so John 20, 1 to 2. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Mary Magdalene, a couple days after Jesus has died, three days actually after Jesus has died, goes to his tomb. We're not not told why she goes. She may have gone there to kind of venerate um, him at his tomb. We know that would happen sometimes to Jewish martyrs in this time. Perhaps she went to pray. Uh, Perhaps she went just to grieve. I think, you know, Mary is this, is this person who Jesus has a special relationship with in the Gospels, who, who, who kind of sees him as, understands him, I think, better than a lot of other people do because of sort of the grace and the mercy he extends to her, the dignity and value he gives to her when many others don't view her that way. So, so obviously, 
spiritually, she is especially impacted by Jesus' death, especially grieved by it. And so she may just be going to, to spend time grieving, crying over the fact that her friend, uh, th- th- this Messiah figure that she had put her hope and trust in, had uh, now lay dead inside of this tomb. And, and Jesus' tomb is, is acquired pro- by two uh, wealthy, influential people, a guy named Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, which is kind of just like the legislative body, the kind of the, the people who made a lot of the rules within Israel at the time. And then actually Nicodemus. You remember him from chapter 3? Julie spent a sermon talking about Nicodemus and Jesus' encounter. And it's fun to see him pop back up in the story as someone who is still kind of following Jesus, maybe a little bit from afar, but still wondering what Jesus is up to and, and when he dies, wants to give him a proper uh, respect for what he had done. When many other people who are Pharisees uh, like, like Nicodemus wanted actually to see Jesus shamed. He, he, they decide, let's give this guy uh, some respect for the great leader, the great martyr that he was. So, so notice that when, when John starts this story out, very, very first verse of the, of the chapter here, he says, instead of saying three days later, right, because it is three days later, and that, that's, that's what we know as Christians, right? Jesus laid in that tomb for three days before he rose again. But John doesn't say that. He actually tells us that early on the first day of the week, is when Mary decides to go. And so John is being intentional here in terms of how he's framing the time by, by kind of giving us the fact that something new is taking place here, right? So a new week has dawned, and on this new week, like, everything has changed, all right? And so he's kind of rooting what's going on, the, the, the symbolic newness of what's about to take place in terms of time, all right? And so if we pay attention, we, we see that for John, a new era has started to dawn, a new type of week, a new type of, a new type of uh, age has dawned now because that tomb is not filled. We're about to find out. Something new is, is happening. In verses 3 and 8, uh, John says, So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Okay, just in case you're, you're missing what, what's happening here. The other disciple, the, 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 the John kind of refers to this other disciple or the beloved disciple, the lo- disciple Jesus loved in the, past, er, in, in the book. It's probably John himself. Like, there's almost certainty among scholars that this is John. This is how he refers to himself in the story. And I don't know what, what it says about John, that he has to make sure that everybody knows that he beat Peter to the tomb, right? Like, this book is written, uh, by the time John finally puts this down, it's probably 40, 50, 60 years after it happened. So John is an old man at this time. And one of the details that he for sure remembers is that he outran Peter to the tomb, which I think is kind of funny. Just apparently tells you something about how competitive of a person John was. Just let it go, dude. Seriously, right? Um, but now it's in Scripture, and now it's God's Word, and it's inerrant, and it will always be that John outran Peter to the tomb, all right? It, it's, it's truth. You can't debate it now because it's in the Bible, apparently, all right? But uh, anyway, so John gets that in there. Uh, he continues, though, he bent over and looked in, the, in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and he believed. So that last part there is significant. Verse 8. When John realizes that Jesus isn't there, he believes. 
he, he, he has a belief that something has taken place here. Now, we're not sure what he believes. We're not told what he believes. And, and actually, the next verse, which I don't have on the screen, actually says that they didn't know Jesus had been raised. Okay, So that's not apparently part of what John is believing here. Okay, But, but what, at least we know that John has a clue that God isn't done working yet. And he has some belief, some hope, some excitement that what God is up to now is something that is, that is beyond expectation, that is surprising, that is not ending in defeat and misery and death in the tomb here. And so, um, and so uh, first point of application here today is, is that God is working even when the tomb blocks off our vision. Okay, I think that's what John wants us to understand here, and, and, he, and he's telling us here in that, 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 that sign of belief. All right? Sometimes we can get this feeling that Mary and John and Peter and all the other people that had known and loved Jesus are having at this time. Right? Feeling like, like everything has ended in failure, that, that God has been thwarted in some way, or his, his plan has gone off the rails, or, or, or maybe his plan is just not a good plan. Right? Maybe it's not the good plan we hoped it was. All right? and, like, it's, like our, it's like a tomb is blocking our view. We can't see what's going on inside that tomb. But we can, we can feel filled with hope. We can find signs of belief, even, we, even if we don't know what's going on in the midst of that, like John does, to know that, that like, like a seed growing underneath the soil where you can't see it, right? You, you, you put the seed in the ground, you don't know what's taking place under there. We can believe that that is starting to sprout and to grow even though we haven't seen it surface out of the ground yet. And we can believe that that's true about what God does as well. And so it gives us a reason to hope even when things are blocked from us, even when we can't see what God is doing, when it seems like things are really bad, they're at their darkest time. We can believe that God has, is working in some way, and we can find hope in that, even in the midst of, in the midst of, of unbelief sort of creeping in, of sort of despair creeping in. We can, we can find hope, like John does here, um, to know that God is at work, even if we don't know what that looks like, even if we don't know the resurrection that's taking place, we can believe that God is up to something. So don't despair. If that's you right now, if you are feeling in some way like God's purposes are obscured from your view in some way, you're feeling in despair in some way, believe that God is working good. Believe that there is something good going on behind that tomb. That God does not leave tombs closed, but he opens them up and he raises from the dead situations and and people and, and all sorts of stuff to bring it to new life, to bring it to fulfillment. Let's keep going here in John 20, 11 to 13. As she wept, she bent over to look inside the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. So Mary comes back to the tomb, and this is what she's thinking. So John has let us know that he believes something good is going on, but apparently Mary, is, Mary thinks the, the, something even worse has maybe taken place, and that's probably a grave robbery, which is not an uncommon thing uh, at this time for people to go and uh, to, 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 to sort of um, maraud tombs, to kind of break in, and sometimes people's personal belongings would be put in there with them, or, or maybe they had been put in there with some fine clothing. People would go in and all the time, or steal, even steal the body itself. Um, so so that's, that's what Mary's thinking right now. That's, that's in her mind. She meets these angels, which apparently she doesn't realize they're angels, um, okay? Just to know, apparently angels don't have, you know, wings that are not shining brightly all the time. Like, you know, she, she thinks they're probably just regular people that are hanging out in there. Um, and, um, but she, but she thinks, hey, uh, just these, like, 
Jesus' grave has been robbed. That's what's going through her head right now. And they ask her why she's crying, and she tells them, I don't know where he went. Someone came and took him, and I can't even come here to sort of venerate or grieve him. I don't even get that luxury anymore. That's how bad things have gotten for her now. So she is just in the pits of despair, right? I can't imagine being at a lower place for her right now in this situation. But at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But at this point, she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was just the gardener, the guy who kind of tended to uh, the, the, the grave site the, um, and made sure that it's, it looked pretty, uh, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put them and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned around and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Okay? At, at Jesus' voice, at him calling her uh, by her name, just saying her name, she, she knows it's him. She, she understands that it's him. She sees, and, and it's revealed to her that this is actually the risen Jesus now, at his voice. Now, file this way. We're going to come back to this and explain it, talk about it a little bit more. But, but understand that what's going on here is that Mary is only able to perceive the risen Jesus when he calls her by her name. And actually, if we go back a few chapters to chapter 10, uh, we, we did this about a month ago. We talked about how uh, Jesus is the good shepherd. And he specifically says there that the good shepherd calls his sheep by name and his sheep know his voice. And that's actually what, exactly what's taking place here. The good shepherd, the one who has not remained dead but has risen again, calls her by her name and she knows it's him. And she is flooded with excitement. She can't contain it. And so what she does, we see in verse 18, is that she runs to the uh, other disciples. Here we go, verse 18. She, she went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that she had seen these things. Or uh, she told them that he had said these things to her. She told them that Jesus himself had appeared to her. He had called her by name. He had told her that she, he had been raised again. And she just cannot wait. She has got to go tell everybody about it. She's, she's running around preaching the good news. That's what's taking place here. And actually, this is our first kind of detail I want to draw out here, which is something we maybe don't, don't realize, is that the first preacher of the gospel, the first preacher of the good news that Jesus has been raised is actually a woman. It's actually a, a woman who, who would have like been seen as a very lower class person in this society. It's, it's someone who would have not had a lot of, of dignity or value. But on the lips of this grieving woman, a woman who would have probably been seen as sort of hysterical and crazy. That's how women were viewed in the first century. God chooses to have the first proclamation of the gospel come. That Jesus has died and he's been raised again to new life. And so Jesus shows this sort of uh, special honor to women. Now, why is this a big deal in this culture? I think this is something we should lean into um, both for, for, for a couple reasons, okay? So we find in, in the first century that... Uh, women were not seen as, as acceptable legal witnesses. We may regret it now, but this is how the Jewish world and most others worked at the time. This is what a, a, a New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright says. Okay, so, the, so what we're finding is that Jesus is taking the people who are kind of seen as lower in society, not as good as, not as, good as men in this society, this much more patriarchal society, and he's giving them a sort of dignity and honor to be the first preachers of his message. 
That's what we're seeing take place here. And I think we, we can see that this is how God desires the gospel to go out. On the lips of those who are downtrodden, who are oppressed, who are, who are maybe not uh, seen as high in the eyes of society, those are the ones who God wants to be the preachers of his gospel, the ones who, who preach the good news. It's not just those in charge. It's not just those with pretty Instagram uh, pages or, or nice YouTube channels or great editing skills right? It's not, it's not those people that, that God is primarily wanting to go out and preach his message, all right? I think that that's important for us to, uh, to understand here, all right? And, and then there's a second a point to this, why it's important. It's actually an apologetic one. It actually kind of points to the credibility of the account, right? I'm sure many of you are aware that, like, a lot of people think that this story of Jesus rising again is, is more of a myth, right? It's, or, or maybe it's a mistake. Some people thought that they saw Jesus uh, raised again from the dead, but it was more of a hallucination, or, or they made it up for some reason to sort of get, get, get their message out there and get some um, respectability for themselves in some way, right? They had some ulterior agenda other than just telling us the truth. But actually, because of what's taking place here with Mary, we can actually kind of find in it some sort of credibility to the story itself. Let me, let me understand what I mean here. Um, John Polkinghorne, is a, uh, he's an Anglican priest and physicist, and, and he says this, perhaps the strongest reason of taking the stories of the empty tomb absolutely seriously lies in the fact that it is women who play the leading role. It would have been very unlikely for anyone in the ancient world who was concocting a story to assign the principal part to women, since in those times they were not considered capable of being reliable witnesses in a court of law, like I said before. Um, it is surely much more probable that they appear in the gospel accounts precisely because they actually fulfilled the role that the story is assigned to them, and in doing so, they make a startling discovery. Okay, so we actually know from, from history that uh, at the time that the, the, the gospel spread, that Christianity is starting to gain influence in society, there were pagan philosophers or, or ancient critics of, of, of um, the, the story of Christianity that would point to this specific part of the story to say, are you guys kidding me? Really? This is all, this is all founded on the wit witness of some women? Are you kidding? Like, we don't trust what they have to say. This is actually an apologetic point that the church had to sort of fight against. Uh, we actually have a, a, a dialogue between a guy named Celsus. He's kind of a popular level social critic of Christianity uh, in that time, kind of like a Richard Dawkins or, or who, you know, whoever you want. And then a guy named Origen. He's a Christian theologian and apologist and, and defender of the faith. And Celsus specifically says, like, we can't trust this story that you Christians are telling us because of, because of who the, the, the people who are telling it to us are. Yeah, right? You, you would base your whole religion on the testimony of some, of some hysterical, he actually calls them hysterical women. What, what's wrong with you guys? That's what, actually what he says. All right? Now, if the Christians, if these, these early disciples had invented the story and they'd wanted to be compelling, they would not have had women be the first witnesses. If they're trying to make this, this sort of lie that they've come up with spread easily through society, this is not the way you would have done it, okay? And so, so, so what, we, what we find is all four Gospels tell us the fa that, the, the story, that this is exactly how it played out. So what's more historically likely? That this story was made up and the Christians were just dummies and, and told the story this way? Or that they're just telling the story as it happened, right? They're just kind of relaying to us historically, reliably what took place, I think it's actually much more likely that it's the second one. Like, if they could have changed it, they, if, you know, if they were making up the story, they would, have, they would have done that. Or they would have changed the story once they started to experience some opposition to it. But they don't. They just, they just keep going. It gives the story credibility. 
And I think that this is one of, like, this is one of many good historical reasons to believe in the validity of the story of the resurrection. All right? and, and once we start to really think about the fact that this is not just a point of belief that us Christians have, but it's actually a historical event, something that, that took place in the physical world, the same as any of you driving here this morning or, 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 or that, that you buy a house or you get married or, or, or you, you, an election takes place or a pandemic comes through the world, that it's just as real as any of those things. It starts, to, it starts to kind of give us a sense for the ways in which the resurrection starts to impact the world. It's not just, it's not just a spiritual thing we do. Right? It's not just something we believe. It's an actual historical event that took place and changed history in ways that, that, that I don't think we, we fully comprehend as Christians. Right? I don't think we always do a great job of grasping that this was a historical event. Right? And we don't feel that it's real or at least as real as whatever's trending on social media today, whatever big life event we just had. We don't soak ourselves and our imaginations at what it means that Jesus has actually been raised from the dead, physically, historically, and that that means, some, that means stuff for the history of the world. All right, Not just for us personally, but for the history of the world as constituted, filled with people and societies and news stories that is just as real as any one of those. Okay? When we let that really sink in, I think that changes our perspective on how we view other things that are taking place within history or within our, our lived experience, our, our lives in the material world. All right, now he, here's one of those things. All right, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. And this is our second detail I want to sort of draw out today. Here we go. Oh, come on. So the second detail I want to draw out today is that the resurrection body is not like the former body that Jesus has. So we get these sort of clues in the story that Jesus has not just come back to life in the same old body he had before. There's something that's been changed about about the the substance even of his body here that is different than what it was before. And we have a story of a resurrection earlier in John and Lazarus comes back to life. But there's no expectation that Lazarus has got this body that is now incorruptible, that it's made of a different substance that doesn't decay. All right, there's every expectation that Lazarus comes back to life, but he still dies someday. He, he still dies like a regular human would. Just because he came back to life again doesn't mean he's now guaranteed uh, eternal life in the body that he's living in. But that's not the same with Jesus. And we see some strange sort of features in his physical body that are brought out for us. So, so here's a few. Here's one. Jesus' resurrection body can be touched and can be handled. We see that in verse 27. And, and it's still physical. It's not like a ghost body. Okay? But it bears the marks of the wounds inflicted on Jesus' pre-death body. All right, so, so apparently Jesus' body still has holes in it, uh, it still ha- in his hands, it still has the, 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 the cuts to his side that they did to him on the cross, but those are no longer fatal. Those are no longer uh, impacting him in any way. They don't seem to bother him in, in, in one way whatsoever. So that stuff's true, but on the other hand, Jesus' resurrection body apparently rose through the grave clothes. That seems to be how the story is told. Um, Jesus uh, magically appears in a locked room. That's what we find out later in the passage. Like the disciples are bravely hiding in a locked room a few days later after this. And, and, and John specifically tells us this room was locked and then all of a sudden Jesus is in there. So apparently he can walk through walls or, or something, right? John doesn't explain to us any uh, of, of what's going on. And then like we saw with Mary and we will see in other places too, and not just in John but in other gospels, 
people don't always recognize Jesus right away. There seems to be something different about him. We don't know what, but we know there's something different. All right? And, and we actually learn a little bit more about the resurrection body from the Apostle Paul. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verses 35 to 54, which I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to kind of summarize it for you, but it's really, really cool. Okay? So, so Paul gives us some details on what to expect, and he tells us that Jesus' body, the, the body that Jesus has been raised into, is like the blueprint for what will happen for us when those who are in Christ will someday be raised again as well. When Jesus returns, when he establishes the new heavens and the new earth here, he redeems all of creation, and we are raised again as well, Jesus' resurrection body is like the blueprint. We can expect to have bodies like what he's been raised into as well. And and Paul kind of uses this analogy. He says that a seed has to die before it can be like reborn into something new, but something still similar, which is the plant. It comes from the seed, which which dies, but something new grows out of it that, that is different, but it's still the same in a sense. And he says the resurrection body is like this. It will retain some of our old body, some of the characteristics of it, but, but it, it actually dies and something new sort of sprouts out of it, something, something better, something more beautiful, okay? And I think it's, and Paul says this, he, he talks about how our bodies are built out of something that is kind of a part of the fabric of this world now, which means it's, it's corruptible, it's decaying, and we, we find this in other places in the Bible too, where, where it's creation itself, which includes our physical bodies, which includes the, the natural world as we see it, it is tied, God has wired the world in such a way that, that human choices, hum, human righteousness and wickedness is sort of, when that goes awry, creation starts to sort of fall apart at the seams, all right? There, there's, a, there's a connection there that we don't fully understand, but is, but is absolutely there. And we see places in the Bible, like in, like in the flood, the flood narrative, right? When we see the author of Genesis telling us about, like, it's like creation is being undone, because human wickedness had reached this level that, that, the, that the, the, the waters of the flood cannot just be held back anymore. Like creation starts to sort of unravel. Creation itself starts to unravel. And so our bodies are part of that. And we live in a world that is so connected and also destroyed by human wickedness throughout the centuries that our bodies ourselves sort of are decaying or are corruptible as a result of it. But the new body, the the new resurrection body that we're given comes from another place. It comes from the place that that Jesus himself has come from, from God himself. And it will be uh, incorruptible, not subject to decay any longer. Not plagued by this world, but a part of a new world. The one that is a resurrection world that has come from heaven, just like Jesus himself has come from heaven and been raised again. And Paul says this in, in verses 43 and 44, if it, this is the body, if it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. If it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. If it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Here's what he's saying here. A body that is plagued by, by chronic illness or, or some, some, sort of, some sort of disease that a body might have will now be raised again and operate at peak Olympic level, or beyond Olympic level maybe. A body that is wrecked by drug use or alcoholism or any other substance will be raised untainted by any of those substances, not trapped by mistakes of the past any longer. You know how now when we make bad decisions with our body, we have to live with those the rest of our lives? Well, we will not be held accountable for those mistakes when we are raised again. That's what Paul is saying here. 
a body that is maybe mangled by a horrific accident, by, by war or violence or, or even martyrdom, like what happens to Jesus, will be stitched together in a sort of new kind of fullness where, where those scars will now become sort of symbols of the glory of redemption that we experience because of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying here. Okay? It's like we're imagining the best versions of ourselves, but even the best thing we can imagine is still probably a pixelated image of what it'll actually look like. It's not the, the full clarity, because we just don't totally understand it. But, but we can expect to have that as well. And that's our second point of application today, that even the most worn-down bodies have the hope of being remade by God's creative resurrection work. Listen, I know people here at Resurrection City, people listening to the sermon or watching it online, you do uh, maybe suffer from chronic health issues, or maybe your body is, is impacted in some way, and you just have to live with it for the rest of your lives. All right? We know that that's true of people in this church. Um, but we can have hope as Christians that, that it's not, you know, it's, we're not going to be trapped by that forever. That, that, uh, that, that we don't have to live in the hopelessness of thinking this is all it ever, is ever going to be. Okay, we can believe that God is not just going to manage our bad health maybe now in the present. Like, we might experience healing now, but we might not, okay? But we can believe that God is not just going to manage our bad health now, but he's going to remake it someday. And resurrection is our, our symbol of hope for that in the future. So if that's you right now, I hope that you find hope in that, knowing that, that everything will one day be remade. And, and even your body is a part of that redemption. All right, let's move on to our, our next detail in the passage here. People experience Jesus through his self-disclosure. Now, I kind of put a pin in this one earlier when we were talking about Mary and how she, she understood Jesus calling her only by hearing him call her voice. But I want to dwell on this a little bit more. Remember, remember that Mary can't tell it's Jesus until he calls her. This happens actually other places in the book, too. It kind of takes Jesus' self-disclosure. We see it with the rest of the disciples as well. Now, I think that this is important for us as sort of a paradigm for what it looks like when Jesus does call us. We, we need him to call us. We need to sort of have his revelation to us to fully understand and comprehend and see him as the risen Lord. I think today there's a lot of pressure to sort of reason our way, to sort of build our own Jesus through our own self-disclosure, through our own sort of revelation of who we must be, whether it's through our own study or through our experience, kind of sifting through different things that we'd like for Jesus or God to be and sort of putting that together. And it just becomes like a kind of almost a Frankenstein's monster of, of things that we like and we, we want Jesus to be. That's where a lot of people are at right now. But really, it's just sort of self-reflection of them and their beliefs. So here's a couple of examples. We are a few weeks away from an election. I don't know if any of you guys realize that. I don't think it's possible to, to not know that we're coming up on an election here. But um, every year around election, or every election cycle, a couple of different Jesuses start to emerge. There's the, there's the gun-toting, certified American patriot Jesus who rides around on a tank and has a big flag, right? And then there's the other Jesus who is like really only concerned with taking down capitalism, maybe, right? Making sure that anyone who has money is, is seen as, as the bad guy, as the real problem in society, and Jesus just wants to usher in this sort of socialist utopia, right? We see these sort of caricatures of Jesus on either side that are really just built out of the image of the people who already believe those things, all right? And so it's, it's easy to take Jesus and sort of put him together in such a way to say, well, this is who Jesus is, 
It's the Jesus that looks just like me. It's the, it's, it's the Jesus that I, that, that I see when I look in the mirror at myself. That's who Jesus really is. That's what he's into, is all the stuff that I'm into. And, and we, have to, we have to be aware of not letting ourselves fall into that trap. Now, we kind of see this a little bit with, with Thomas. Uh, in, in verses um, 24 to 25, we see, see Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. So Thomas, for some reason, is just not with the disciples. And, 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 and he misses Jesus when he shows up to them the first time. And so he tells them, okay, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I'm not believing. So Thomas sort of sets out this criteria for belief. He kind of says, um, if Jesus is real or if he's really been raised from the dead, Right? If he's really Lord, if he's really done all this stuff that you guys say, he's got to sort of fit my beliefs in order to do that. Here, here's what he must look like if I'm going to believe in the Jesus you're talking about. I'll bow a knee, I'll look to be saved only when I'm presented with a Jesus who I want. Right? That this is where Thomas is at. And I think a lot of people who you know, feel dissatisfied with Christianity, with the church, a lot of times they're, they're dissatisfied because the Jesus they're expecting is not the Jesus who we find in this story. It's not, it's a Jesus that they built on their own, and naturally that Jesus is going to fail their expectations because they built it out of their own hearts, which themse- you know, themselves they find despair in many times. Okay? We, we should pray to God constantly that when we open our Bibles, when we come to church, we fold our hands to pray, um, that, that, we, that we actually meet Jesus instead of meeting ourselves. I think that happens so much, and it's happening in churches probably across the country right now, where that, that is happening with people. They are just meeting themselves when they come to church instead of actually meeting Jesus, all right? We, we can't let that happen here, you guys. We have to make sure that we are letting Jesus reveal himself to us instead of trying to tell Jesus who he must be. And the good news is that the resurrected Jesus won't be contained, even by death itself, so if he's not going to be contained by death itself, he's not going to let our little boxes that we try to put him in be things that hold him in, okay? God's grace overcomes our idolatry all the time. And we see this here in uh, verses 26 and 28. Sorry, guys. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. So Jesus shows up and he's like, okay, I will contextualize myself too, I will let you, to really experience me, I'll even let you do the thing you want. And what we see is that Thomas doesn't need to do it. He doesn't actually end up needing Jesus, he's already satisfied his criteria without even going and putting his fingers in the side of Jesus or putting his, his fingers in the, the holes in Jesus' hand because Thomas immediately exclaims afterwards, my Lord and my God. And you guys, this is the, we get a lot of people who meet Jesus in the Gospels and not just in John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well. And in all four of the Gospels, this is the fullest expression of faith of any single person in there. So Thomas is not, he's not a bad guy, all right? We, we want to see him as a good guy because when he meets Jesus, he drops everything, including his preconceived notions, and follows him by exclaiming, my Lord and my God. No one says anything about Jesus in the Gospels that is that strong. 
okay? Thomas's expression of belief is, is greater because his expectations are lying shattered on the ground in front of him. He doesn't even need them anymore because he's seen something so much better than anything he could have imagined for himself. And we will experience Jesus as he is as well as we allow him to reveal ourselves, as we are willing to, 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 to put our expectations aside as well and just meet Jesus as he is, as he reveals himself to us. Now, lest you think that this belief that Thomas has is only possible for people who can actually see Jesus, think again, because John actually tells us in the end of the book here that Jesus and John himself have, a, have an expectation that others will come to believe in him that haven't seen him. This is what we see here in this, in this next verse. Then Jesus told them, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Say, so we are blessed to believe in Jesus, even though we've not seen him in the way the disciples have. I want you to take that, okay? I know sometimes we can feel like, you know, it would have been really nice to actually be with Jesus physically in person. It would have been nice to be one of the people in the story. I could have beat John and Peter in a race if I'd been there, right? It'd be nice if we could be in the story, we think. But actually, Jesus wants us to to, to know that we are blessed for believing and, and seeing Jesus as he is, even without being there. And John himself, he ends the book. This is actually not the actual end, but it's kind of like the last chapter. There's an epilogue that we'll talk about next week, but this is kind of how he brings the book to a close with sort of his concluding statement. He says, these are written, this, this book, the, these stories are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's saying, I wrote this book so you could have the same experiences that we did. I wrote this that you could believe, like I did at the tomb, like Mary did when her grief was turned to joy, like Thomas did when his, when his kind of skepticism was cast aside, was no longer necessary, and that if you believe, you will have life in this name. I'm going to close in prayer, and we're going to conclude the service with some worship. Lord, we thank you that you, uh, you died and you rose again. You did not stay contained within that tomb, Lord, but you, you, you broke it apart, Lord, so you could bring to earth the new creation that you have, the, the life that you had been promising throughout this whole book of John, Lord. You brought it to pass when you died for us, when you took our sin on us, and then you were raised again to new life as the true Lord of the earth. God, we thank you for the hope that we can have in that. Lord, I pray that our expectation, our sight, our reality, our historical reality, God, of the way that the world is, would be rooted in you and in your death and in your resurrection for us, God. That is our prayer this Sunday morning, Lord. Help it to be on our lips as we go from this place for the rest of the week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.